Do you love early intervention, but feel like you need more mentorship and information to thrive in this setting? We're here to provide a safe, inclusive community where we learn from and uplift one another. It's our mission to prepare students and practitioners to be confident and competent working in early intervention. Hi, I'm Amira Johnson. I'm Danielle DiLorenzo. And I'm Sarah Putt. And together, we're the real OTs of early intervention. So today we are going to be discussing the typical diagnoses that we see as early intervention providers. You'll hear some that are pretty common that you may have learned about in OT school, but you'll also hear some new ones. We'll talk about what those diagnoses are, how they guide our treatment plans, and even what to do when you've never heard of a diagnosis before. This episode is sponsored by Mornings with an OT Mom. My mission is to create a platform to empower, uplift, and educate other parents, students, professionals, and anyone else interested in all things OT, EI, schools, and everything else in between. If you would like to know more information, you can check out my website at www.daniellelorenzo.com. When I was in OT school, I remember learning about a ton of different diagnoses specific to the pediatric population. And I knew that I would encounter some of those, whether I was going into outpatient pediatric or early intervention or even inpatient. So I was familiar with some of them, but today what we're going to talk about is some of the most common, but also some of the least common diagnoses and how to navigate that, especially from my perspective as a new graduate when you haven't maybe heard of it in school. But first, I kind of want to talk to you, Danielle, to talk about why is this important? You know, some of our kiddos, they don't even have a diagnosis, but why is it important that we are aware of the ones that are out there, whether they are super rare or they are more common ones? Yeah, I think this comes up a lot as well, especially when I would take fieldwork students and they would look like a deer in headlights when a diagnosis would come up. And I'd be like, no, it's cool. We're going to learn. We're going to talk about this. And what's important is, like you said, some of the kids won't have a diagnosis. And when there is a diagnosis present, the reason why really it's so important to have an awareness of what the diagnosis consists of is so that you are appropriately planning treatment sessions that are not contraindicated of anything that would be present within that diagnosis. So for example, if you are working with a kiddo that has a diagnosis of cerebral palsy, you're going to be mindful of what type of cerebral palsy that is. So you can plan intervention strategies that would not compromise muscle integrity, range of motion, or increase spasticity. So really think about it as not something to fear, but something that you want to learn to add to your tool bag of all these different names that might pop up. And it's okay to say, you know what? I have not heard of that. I'm going to do some research so I can make sure that I'm planning my treatment sessions to the best of my ability to maintain the safety of your child. Sarah, I feel like we've talked about this before when we've had students that get really nervous or new graduates. And, you know, what are some of the things that you've said to them to kind of put their minds at ease when they're not familiar with a diagnosis? I love what you said about it's okay not to know because I know when I was a new grad, I remember this parent coming to me and saying, oh, my son was just diagnosed with X, Y, and Z. And I remember sitting there and like freaking out and being like, oh my gosh, I should know this. And actually like putting it in kind of a negative light where I was like, I can't believe that I don't know this. And I ran to my boss at the time and I asked her, what is this diagnosis? And she's like, I don't know. And she'd been in OT for 10, 20 years at that point. She's like, just go look it up. And I'm like, 
oh, okay. And it's from that moment, I learned that it's okay for us to not know what it is, but then we have to utilize our resources to do the research and figure out what these diagnoses are, mainly just for kind of a better understanding of a overall presentation of what this diagnosis could look like. Now, every kid is going to be different. So whether it's an autistic child or a child that has cerebral palsy, you could work with another kid and they can present very, very differently or have different likes, different dislikes and all that kind of stuff. So I think looking at the diagnosis is an important piece of the puzzle, but it's definitely not everything and it's not something to get stuck on. And I think a lot of students and new grads get stuck on the diagnosis and like, this is what I need to do, ABC and one, two, three, and this is going to be my plan, where it's more of just kind of this guiding light of like, hmm, this could mean that it presents with certain challenges, feeding challenges, motor challenges, coordination challenges, anything like that. And the other thing too, is it could also provide insight into different referrals and resources that you might be able to send the parents to. So if you have a kiddo that comes that might, like the, the diagnosis might have cardiac issues and they don't have a cardiologist on their team, you can say to the parent, like, hey, have you talked to your doctor about this? This might be something that you want to add or see if you can get a referral for and and either rule it out or make sure that those needs are being met. So it's not everything, but it is important for one aspect. So there are a lot of diagnoses out there. I think that we can all agree amongst the three of us, we've seen the most rare of the rare to some of the more common ones. So what I want to do is kind of go through some of the more common ones that we've seen in our practice. So I can start off as a new graduate, the ones that I've seen the most have been prematurity. So if you know me and know everything that I am passionate about, I absolutely love working with kiddos who were born premature or had a stay in the NICU. So, you know, bringing that lens into the kiddos who have been born premature has been really, really interesting for me and part of just something that I'm really passionate about. So prematurity for sure is a very common one. And we all know that that is going to mean that that kiddo might be at risk for a developmental delay. In early intervention, a lot of the kiddos too are just in general at risk for a developmental delay, whether they have a diagnosis or not. So you might get a referral for a kiddo and it literally just says a developmental delay and it might list in a category such as speech or cognitive or social emotional skills or adaptive behavior or participating in daily routines. So you might have just a referral that says that. Another one that I've had is prenatal drug exposure. So again, kind of going back to prematurity, a lot of times those kiddos, those two kind of go hand in hand. So I'm curious to know, Danielle and Sarah, what are some of the more common ones that you guys have seen in your practice? For me, prenatal drug exposure was one of the most common diagnosis that I saw when I would receive a referral. And it comes with some additional factors that need to be considered. So I spent a lot of my time in early intervention with foster parents within the court system, providing therapy with parents under supervised visits. And I think that not only does the prenatal drug exposure impact the development of the baby, but it also comes with a lot of social emotional factors for the entire family unit. And one of the reasons why this is so important is most often, especially when a baby is exposed to methamphetamines, they present very tight posturally and they present with an overactive nervous system. 
And it is very imperative to be able to teach the caregivers how to see these signs of more overstimulation, over responsiveness, and really help them with a lot of positioning and modified ways to handle the child to really support the further development of the central nervous system and to further promote that physical development through tummy time, through just being in more relaxed postures. Another diagnosis that is prevalent and many children on my caseload were autistic or Many times children would come in without a diagnosis of autism. However, they needed support to help with sensory processing, attention, tactile defensiveness, sensory seeking. A lot of kids that came into early intervention were on wait lists to see developmental pediatrician where the parents believed that there was something else going on besides a developmental delay where the areas of support that would be needed would be in those areas that you were mentioning before, Amira, with their social emotional development, with their receptive expressive language, with attention. Lot of big attention. We got a lot of hyper kiddos. And it's not very common to have an ADHD diagnosis at such a young age. However, I'm pretty sure we've all had a lot of hyper kids like my son on a caseload before. So I would say those were the two diagnoses that I saw the most on my caseload. I wanted to piggyback a little bit on what Amira said when she was talking about the kiddos that come in with the diagnosis, quote unquote, diagnosis of developmental delays. And that really tends to be, I'd say, the biggest one that we get that is kind of this all encompassing, what does it actually mean? It's kind of like, we don't know what's happening with this kid. Let's get him assessed. Let's see what happens. And kind of in that same vein, what I've also gotten a lot of referrals for specifically for like the evaluation process would be speech delays and feeding concerns. And they're, again, they're like this kind of global diagnosis or global topic of information that they're giving us where it's like, we're not sure what's happening, but something seems to either be off or maybe it just needs to be looked at. So a lot of times we're getting these kiddos where it's just a kind of this word that isn't very descriptive of we're like, all right, what are we going to do with this? How are we going to look at like what they present as and what they're able to do, what they're not able to do? So I feel like more often than not, where I'm kind of getting these very kind of overview general terms that are thrown at me. But I agree with everything that you guys have said about the drug exposure, prematurity. I'd also throw in Down syndrome. That's been a big one that I've seen a lot of kiddos come through with that diagnosis. And the really interesting thing that I've seen over my 11 years of experience is that it actually, and this is like totally anecdotal, but just based on my experience, but I get these almost like increased numbers of kiddos with diagnoses and they come in like waves. So all of a sudden I'll get like a ton of kiddos that were all premature or a ton of kiddos that were all drug exposed or a ton of kiddos that have Down syndrome. And then in a couple months, it will like ebb into something else. And it's been very, very interesting to see this like ebb and flow of the diagnoses coming through. Have you guys seen that? Or is that just something that I've experienced? No, I definitely, I agree with you. I think that you never know who you're going to get on your caseload when you get handed a referral. And I think I, I really liked what you said, where you're not always going to get a diagnosis. And, and, you know, a lot of the other kiddos that I would have on my caseload are, were actually very medically fragile. I had a lot of kiddos that had very limited mobility that were on G-tubes, JPEGs, trachs, 
had, had just had open heart surgery, had just all of these other types of surgeries. And you have to be mindful of how much you can do as a therapist when there are a lot of medical complexities. And it was great when I got to see kiddos at a medical fragile daycare because I had a nurse with me all the time. So I was always checking in being like, is this okay? Can I, can I move them in this position? Can I do this here? Like, are they able to, you know, what's their energy level? Like all this stuff. But when you have a kiddo that's just coming home from the hospital and a family that's trying to understand their their care plans at home and you know sometimes you'll have a nurse sometimes you won't sometimes you'll be there when the nurse is there sometimes you won't and you have to do the best you can to make these experiences through therapy about that connection again with the family. So remember, it's not something to fear. I know it can seem so scary to walk into a home and see this tiny baby hooked up to all of these monitors and have all of these medical interventions. But the best thing that you can do is walk over to that baby, take that baby's hand and say, hello. And you just talk to them. Amir, I'm curious to see your thoughts on this because if you've worked a lot in the NICU and when the babies go home, how many babies have you seen that go home that need that care plan, that need that LVN in the home to help? A lot. A lot of kiddos need that. And I think that is something that was the most difficult, one of the most difficult parts of jumping into early intervention fresh out of school. I did have a rotation at a large children's hospital, but I was primarily in the acute outpatient program. So I wasn't inpatient primarily. I wasn't always on the floor, even though I had a ton of experience specific to the NICU. I didn't have a lot of experience managing all of those lines and tubes and certainly not on my own. I always had a clinical instructor or another therapist with me. So when I jumped into early intervention, for some reason, I didn't think I would have a lot of medically fragile kiddos. And Sure enough, that was, you know, the first 50% of my caseload, I was walking in and there were kids on trachs and ventilators. And I was like, ah, (laughs) I didn't know, you know, what to do. Thankfully, I usually had a nurse there with me, but it was, it was very intimidating to walk in and see all of that. But I had to just look past it. I almost had tunnel vision. I just saw the baby. I was like, you know what? The nurse is there. Mom is there. Dad is there. Caregivers there. They know what to do with those lines and tubes. Let me just focus on this baby right now. And, you know, eventually I learned along the way how to maneuver between the the lines and the tubes and everything. But I definitely had to, like I said, just have that tunnel vision because you're there in that moment to really connect with that baby. Those lines and tubes are okay. You're going to get past them. (laughs) Like it's, it's all right. And I will say that, you know, I had a lot of those kiddos hooked up to those were with diagnoses I had never heard of before, right? So now I have both of these factors. I'm fresh out of school. I have a kiddo with a diagnosis I've never heard of before. And then they are also medically fragile. So I can remember I had this one kiddo who had what's called Soto syndrome. And I had just never, never heard of that one before. So, you know, I spent some time, I had to research it. I talked to some other therapists on the team. I looked through Facebook groups. I looked through Instagram tags. And so I did all that I could to really find out all that I could about that diagnosis. But that was not the first and that's not the last of the least or the the more rare diagnoses that you will find in this field. So I kind of want to talk to you guys as you have been practicing for a while now. What are some of those diagnoses that are more rare that we may not have ever heard of in school? I would definitely say the Q deletions, the additions uh, for chromosomes. There is 
so many different ones that each present with their own set of factors. And I know I was blessed to work with Children's Hospital uh, in Philadelphia, and they actually keep a bank of all of these deletions and additions. And what they do is it's really nice because you can add to it or you can look and see what you may encounter if you happen to see that. Because I remember I would get a referral and it would just be this long number and like deletion. And I'm like, I don't know where to start. Another would be Prater Willie, which a lot of people think is just like the kids that can't control and they, they'll eat a lot. But really what's happening is their body isn't ever registered. It is a constant need and striving for hunger. And there's a lot of like low tone and a lot of other things that go along with that. Yeah. So I have worked with a lot of very, very, very rare genetic disorders and diagnoses. And most of these, I've, I've only had maybe a kiddo or two that have had these diagnoses, but they would include cystic fibrosis, Crudichat, wolf Horshorn syndrome, DeGeorge syndrome, Turner and Williams syndrome, Charge syndrome. And I had this one kiddo that the diagnosis was so rare. There were, I think, 30, it was like 20 or 30 of them diagnosed in the world. And the family that I worked with had two of them. And one of them was the client that I worked with. One of them happened to be older and had already aged out of early intervention. But I remember when the mom had told me what the diagnosis was. And it, and it was one that I had never heard of before, nor will I probably ever hear this one again because it's so incredibly rare. But when I went home and like did the research and looked up, like there's only 30 documented cases of this in the world. I was like, wow, that's insane. And this family had two of them. And, you know, I think a really important thing to remember is whether you're going to see a diagnosis that you've never seen before, or you're going to have a child that does not have a diagnosis, don't let fear impact your ability to be an occupational therapist. Whether you are a new grad, 10 years in, like five years in, three years, it doesn't matter. I know that I have been an occupational therapist for 11 years. I've been in early intervention 21 years. I still learn new diagnoses every year of my career. So just because you're a new grad or a fieldwork student, don't think that a senior OTs don't, you know, we don't know everything. So don't let fear of the unknown, don't let fear of the diagnosis you've never seen before, don't let fear of the experience that you're feeling when you're reading these eval papers and being like, my gosh, how am I going to do this? Because this is what you were meant to do. You were meant to help and you're meant to build relationships, strengthen that caregiver child dyad. So next time you want to think that you can't do something, think about the ways that you can. And remember to always think about OT at its core is to look at the function. So it doesn't matter what that diagnosis is. It does matter because you need to know the contraindications and, and that kind of thing. But what we're going to look at is how it's impacting their functional performance and their ability to participate in their daily routines and their ability to bond with their caregivers and their caregivers' ability to bond with their babies. So remember the function 
And remember to ask, what is the most difficult part of the day? You're going to ask that question, whether they have a diagnosis or not. So just go back to the root of what it means to be an OT. And that's to help our kiddos participate in their daily activities, despite a diagnosis, disease, or any condition. So today we talked about some of the more common and some of the least common diagnoses we've encountered in our practice as EI providers. So now it's time to hear from you. Head on over to our Instagram page at The Real OTs of EI or our website, www.therealots.com. We're so excited you joined us today. Check out our website, therealots.com for more information about anything discussed in the episode. And sign up for our email list so you don't miss out on any of our awesome EI resources. And join our amazing community of students and practitioners to get your questions answered and learn from others working in early intervention. Whether you're in the car, on your lunch break, or signing in to your next virtual session, thanks for keeping it real with the real OTs of early intervention. 